If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you, or maybe on the, on the cushion beside you. If you don't have a Bible, you'll probably be lost this morning. So please, if you have one, um, open it to Mark chapter 13. I want to start with this quote. It's about Mark 13, and, and this author writes, Mark chapter 13 records what is called Jesus' Olivet Discourse, and it is by far the most difficult passage in the book of Mark, and along with its parallels in the other Gospels, it is one of the most difficult texts in the entire New Testament. He continues, the fact is we have yet to find a scholar, or pastor I add, who can perfectly unravel the knotty problems of the Olivet Discourse. The study of it requires a proper humility and a willingness to admit that we don't know everything. So I want to read that at the outset so that you wouldn't be surprised when, when I read this chapter in a few moments. At the outset, I want you to know I recognize the nature of Mark chapter 13, the nature of this discourse. I recognize the issues and questions that you're going to have immediately upon the reading of this chapter, and I recognize also the issues and questions that will follow the completion of this sermon. I recognize that. My goal isn't to address every detail and every interpretive issue. My goal is rather to explain this chapter and help give the plain meaning of it so that as, as God's people, we might be encouraged as we leave here, especially as we think about the sometimes confusing and chaotic discussion that sometimes surrounds discussions of the end times. Okay, I think we can leave here encouraged. And as I stand here, I want you to know, I think I have a pretty good grasp of this text. I, I mean, I think, I, I think I've, I've got it as well as I can get it. Okay, so, so I want you to know that. I mean, there's some questions I can't answer, but overall, this, when I read Mark 13, it makes sense to me. And so my challenge is to help you get where I am, right? That, that's a challenge. But stick with me. Um, I do think, I do trust that you'll be encouraged by the truths of this chapter. Right? This chapter doesn't fall outside of the God-breathed nature that, that is true of all Scripture. So it is, it's God-breathed and it's useful for us. So let's, let's read it together. You should be there, Mark chapter 13. You can follow along as I read. I'm going to be, begin reading in verse 1 of Mark chapter 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew, they asked him privately, Tell us, teacher, when will these things be, and, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, now pause right there, okay? I love that. I love seeing all the heads come up, right? So, so stop, stop right there. Hold your place, because what I want to do is I want to set the stage for the discussion that's going to follow, okay? And so what I want to do is I want to set there, there I, I call them three preliminary concerns, three introductory matters. So, so we're going to stop there. We're going to set the stage for what's coming. Okay, I think that's the best way to, to help you grasp, to help me explain what, what I think this chapter is about. So here's three, quickly, three preliminary concerns. First preliminary concern is the context. 
Okay, the context is important. So here in the first four verses that we just read, they're, they're leaving the temple. Jesus and his disciples, they're, they're leaving the temple. This is the last time that Jesus will ever be in this temple, in the complex, and he's leaving the temple. And as they're leaving, there's, there's a disciple, thankfully for him, he's unnamed. He's just a disciple. And this unnamed disciple comments on the wonder and the beauty of, of the temple. So they're leaving, he says, wow, Jesus, look at the wonderful buildings Look how beautiful they are. Now, we mentioned a few weeks ago, this was a massive, this, this temple complex that was rebuilt and, and expanded by Herod, it was a massive complex. It wasn't, wasn't just a, a building. It was this complex that, in fact, spread over 35 acres. So, so this is one of, the ancient, one, one of the great wonders of the ancient world. In fact, one, one rabbinic proverb said, he who has not seen the temple of Herod has never seen a beautiful building in his life. Okay, so, so the reputation of this temple complex was it was beautiful. It was majestic. And so the statement by the disciple, it's not wrong. It's not wrong for him to be in awe of the massive temple complex. But what does seem to be off, what does seem to be wrong, is that this disciple has failed to understand all that's happened inside that temple the days prior to this event. Because Jesus, if we've been following along in Mark's gospel, Jesus made perfectly clear the, the state of this temple and the, 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 what lies ahead for this temple. So there in verse 2, he, he just clarifies what's already been coming. So look there in verse 2, he says, See all these great buildings, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Or another translation says, Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now some, some of these, these stones were, were 70 feet long and Think about the, the nature of the destruction that's being described here. Not one stone is going to be left standing on another. I don't know if you, you saw in the news, there was the, the Georgia Dome was, was imploded recently. So they had all this dynamite and all these explosions. And, and even after that, you, you could still tell what it was. There's still pieces standing. There's still stones on top of another. Jesus here, before a time of dynamite and all these explosives, he says it's going to be destroyed to the extent that not one stone is going to be left standing on top of of another. That is quite a description of destruction. It's total. It's complete. It's as if Jesus is saying, well, you think that's great, disciples? It's destruction. is going to be even greater. And that destruction, that overturning of every stone, it's clear here in verse 2. But the context, as I mentioned, has been leading here all along so that we shouldn't be too surprised at Jesus' words here. I mean, think about quickly Mark 11. As they first go to the temple, there's this fig tree and the cursing of the fig tree, which, which we saw was a representation of, of Jesus' opinion of the temple. That from afar, it, it appeared to bear fruit, it appeared to be serving its purpose, but upon closer inspection, it was useless. And so he, he had judged the temple, he had gone in and, and turned over tables and said, this is not functioning as it ought. This is a den of robbers. And then Mark 12, there's, there's conversation after conversation, there, there's confrontation after confrontation. We have these religious leaders coming up to Jesus, challenging him, trying to, to trap him, trying to kill him. These are representative of the temple. These are the leaders who, who are opposed to Jesus. And then the parable in Mark 12, remember the, the parable of the vineyard. And so these people, Jesus labels as, 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 as those who will kill the son of the vineyard owner. Right? So he's, he's already declared his opinion of the temple and its leaders. And so everything in the last two chapters of Mark have been leading up to this judgment. So here in Mark 13, as Jesus leaves, he does so making perfectly clear what he thought about the temple, its leadership, and all that it represented. 
The temple had lost its purpose. It no longer functioned as it was intended to. And so soon, Jesus says, the temple, at least the one there in Jerusalem, would be destroyed. And so understanding the context is is helpful for us. It helps us think rightly about Mark 13. I mean, imagine that. Mark 11 and Mark 12 help us understand Mark 13, right? That's amazing, isn't it? Right? That's called context. That's important when you're studying the scriptures. And so as we read Mark 13, a lot of, of Mark 13 is focused on this event, the destruction of the temple. That'll, be, that'll prove to be helpful for us. Well, the second preliminary concern is, is the idea of fulfillment. So notice what the four disciples ask there in verse 3. So they're sitting on Mount of Olives opposite the temple. So, that, so they leave the temple mount, and then they go up this, this mount that, that's just to the east side, and they're looking over at this massive complex. And these disciples in verse 4, they ask Jesus, tell us when are these things going to be? What's going to be the sign when all the, this is about, all these things are about to be accomplished? And so here's, here's what's important to understand. The disciples, when they hear Jesus say the temple is going to be destroyed, in their minds, that means one thing. It means the end of the age. So the, the return of the Son of Man, the end of the age, in their mind, the destruction of the temple and the end of the age are simultaneous events. That When the temple is destroyed, the end of the age is right on its heels. That, that's their mindset. That's how they're thinking. And so when they hear Jesus say that the temple is going to be destroyed, they think, that, that's it. That's the end. That's it, which is why when they get the first chance, when they're, when they're up on the Mount of Olives, they ask Jesus, well, when is it going to be? Well, what are the signs? How, how can we know? That they're curious. And so what Jesus does in this chapter is he separates the two events. He separates the destruction of the temple and the end of the age so that he, he corrects their thinking. It's not simultaneous. There, there's a gap in there. They're not going to happen at the same time. Time. And so out chapter 13, there's going to be a back and forth between the destruction of the temple and the end of the age. They're not the same thing. They're not going to happen at the same time. Jesus separates them. And it's important for us because we live between these two events. We live between the times. As we're reading now, okay, I hate to break it to you if you don't know, but there's not a temple in Jerusalem anymore. It's not standing there anymore. It has been destroyed. When Jesus is talking to his disciples, they're, they're actually looking at the temple that sits in Jerusalem. And he's telling them, this is going to be destroyed. That temple you see, it's going to be destroyed. And as we're reading Mark 13 here this morning, the temple has been destroyed. It was a historical event, which means that some of what Jesus is talking about in Mark 13 has already happened, past tense. Some of these events have passed. The temple has been destroyed. So some of Mark 13 has already been fulfilled but on the other end of the timeline, the end of the age, the return of the Son of Man, right? that hasn't happened yet. We're between these two events. So, so some of what Jesus talks about here in chapter 13 is still in the future. It's still yet to be fulfilled. Do you see? You see, some of it has, has already been fulfilled. Some of it is yet to be fulfilled. And so these two main things that Jesus is talking about, we have to work as we walk through this passage to, to understand, well, what is referring to this and what is referring to this? And that's why we, we need discernment. We need to, to have have skills and, and the Lord's help to know. And so then lastly, the last preliminary concern is the purpose. The purpose of this chapter, of this discussion, of this teaching of Jesus. We, we can't forget, we can't lose the purpose. Why is Jesus telling his disciples these things? Now, maybe I should start by saying Jesus is telling his, his disciples these things. Right? Jesus is talking to his disciples. That may, 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 may seem like common sense to you, 
right? But I'm afraid that sometimes we have the tendency, especially when it comes to end times discussion, to completely overlook the original audience, right? If we aren't careful, we can fall into thinking about the end times and constructing theories and paradigms about the end times that would have been totally foreign to Jesus' original hearers. So Jesus is here talking to his disciples about the destruction of the temple and the end of the age, and he expects them to understand That's the purpose of him talking to them. He expects them to understand. So if we understand this in a way that they would have no clue, right? we're we're off on the wrong foot. And so why is Jesus telling his disciples what he tells them here? What's the purpose? As we'll we'll see, there, there are a number of imperatives throughout here. Imperatives are just calls to action. Do this. Do that. He's telling them these things so that they might act, so they might do something. He says, watch out, or be on guard, or don't be alarmed, or stay awake. All of these things that he's telling them, all these things he's calling them to are going to be necessary for the disciples. That's why he's telling it to them. In the events that lay ahead for these, these followers of Jesus, these events that are going to follow the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the disciples need to hear these calls. And they need to heed these calls so that they're aware of what's coming. As one commentator put it, the primary function of Mark 13 is not to disclose esoteric information. It's not just, okay, here's all the the timeline, here's all this information, just plug this into your formulas. But rather, the primary function is is to promote faith and obedience in a time of distress and upheaval. He he goes on to say that Jesus is, is showing pastoral concern, preparing his disciples for what's coming. So he doesn't lay out this timeline of future events just so the disciples can know exactly what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. In fact, what we'll see is Jesus isn't too concerned about the win. And that's not his focus, because at the end of the day, the win doesn't really matter. I mean, yeah, he's going he's to give some vague time mark. He's going to say, yeah, after this, or this must happen first, and, and this will happen then. So there's these vague time markers, but at the end of the day, the win doesn't really matter. What matters, and why Jesus is telling his disciples these things, is that they might be ready. They might be watching, alert, and not led astray. That's his primary Concerned, he's preparing his followers for what's to come. So let's look back down at verse 5, and I'm going to pick up reading in verse 5. So, so back down, verse 5, Jesus began to say to them. So here's his answer to them on the Mount of Olives, verse 5. See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I'm he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you're to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved." Verse 14, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out, and let not the one who is in the fe- let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. 
And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. Verse 20, And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. Verse 24, but in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Verse 28, from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and he puts his servants in charge, each with his work when he leaves each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. All right, you ready? You ready? So so let's look. So I've I've broken this down. Again, I, I think it makes sense. Okay, so, so the outline up there, setting, we've already covered that. We're not even going to look at point one. We've already looked at that. But then second, you see the destruction of the temple, verses 5 through 23 and 28 through 31. And then the end of the age, verses 24 through 27 and 32 through 37. So as you can tell by the outline, I think that verses 5 through 23 as well as Verses 28 through 31 are about the destruction of the temple. So let's look down there at chapter 13, and here's, here's the overall structure. There's teaching about the destruction of the temple. There's teaching about the end of the age. Then there's a parable about the destruction of the temple, and then a parable about the end of the age. Do you see that? There's teaching, teaching, parable, parable, in that order. A, B, A, B. You see? I think that's how this is worked out. I think that's the overall structure. And so here in verses 5 through 23, remember the disciples are asking about signs that would predict the coming of the destruction of the temple. They want signs. So there in verse 5, Jesus starts off, verses 5 through 8, he doesn't give them signs, but instead he gives them not signs. They want signs, he says, okay, I'm going to give you what aren't signs. He tells them what what aren't signs. He gives them things that people are going to be doing and saying that seem to indicate the end is here. And he tells them they're not signs. Don't be led astray. Don't be alarmed. Alarmed. So notice the not signs. Verse 6. There's going to be many false messiahs, even false messiahs that, that gain followers. Right? Not a sign of the end. Verse 7. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. 
Again, not a sign. Jesus does say this must take place, but it's not a sign of the end. Verse 8, nation rising up against nation and kingdoms at war, not a sign. Again, verse 8, earthquakes and famines, not a sign, not a sign. These are not signs that Jesus gives. I mean, notice the last phrase there of verse 8. These are not signs of the end, but they are signs of the beginning of birth pains. They're not signs of the end. Don't be alarmed, he says. They're just, they're just the beginnings of the birth pains. I mean, birth pains are not the same as birth, right? I wish we could have Allie Smith in here to ask her. It's not the same thing, right? Birth pains just say, oh, it's coming. Some, it's a lot faster. Some, it's a lot longer. But, but it doesn't, it's not the same as birth. It's just a sign that, that okay, it is going to come. And so these are not signs that the temple's about to be destroyed. They're not signs that the end is at hand. I mean, that's important to recognize, Notice next, verses 9 through 13, Jesus shifts from these cosmic events to events that will strike much closer to home for the disciples. They're going to be delivered over to councils. They're going to be beaten in synagogues. They're going to stand before governors and kings. They're going to do that for Christ's sake. They're going to do that in order to bear witness. The gospel is going to go to all nations. They'll be brought to trial and delivered. Families will be divided. Families will be destroyed because of this gospel. Disciples will be hated by all because of the name of Christ. And so, so he continues, Jesus continues, this is what awaits you, disciples. Right? These aren't exactly the signs that they're looking for. Right? They think the end means ruling and reigning with Christ. And he says, wait a minute, here's what's going to happen. These aren't cosmic events like the earthquakes and the wars and the families or, and the famines. Right? These aren't cosmic events. These events don't happen indiscriminately. These are things that are going to happen specifically to the followers of Christ, to the disciples. It's because of him they're going to be handed over and beaten. It's because of him they're going to be hated by all. And so Jesus' purpose, far more important than giving them signs of the end, is to prepare them for what's coming. He's shaping their expectations. I mean, notice the encouragement at the end of verse 10. The gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. This isn't, guys, this isn't a Jerusalem-only thing. Right? We're going global with this thing. And it's going to get there, disciples, through you. And not how you think. It's not by way of your free, leisurely travel. You're not cruising the world taking this gospel. You're going to be in chains. And in your chains, you're going to take the gospel to the ends of the world. Your, your suffering and your witness, they go hand in hand. Your, your suffering and your persecution are actually purposeful. So take heart, disciples. He's preparing them for what's going to come. And then notice the comfort in verse 11. When you're standing before governors and rulers, don't be afraid. You're going to be given what to say. And all these things, I couldn't help but think how, how all of this plays out in the book of Acts, doesn't it? All of these events take place in the book of Acts. I mean, think about Paul standing before all of these Roman authorities and how his wisdom confounds them. And then lastly, notice the call to endurance at the end of verse 13. Instead of being discouraged and afraid and falling back because of this suffering persecution, Jesus says, endure. Hold on. You know it's coming. Hold fast. Persevere. Which, as we hear that, that that's kind of harsh, Jesus. We can't forget the lips from whom these words are coming. The one who, who made his way to Jerusalem in order to suffer and die. The, the one who has come to, to Jerusalem in order to be handed over and killed. The one who has come to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus isn't calling his disciples to do anything that he himself won't do. And he is the example. And his followers ought to take Heart, which leads finally to the signs that the disciples ask about. Signs specifically about the destruction of the temple in verses 14 through 23. So I think these are the signs that he's finally getting around to answer their question. He's answering specific questions about 
the destruction of the temple. And the sign that Jesus gives that the destruction of the temple is near is the abomination of desolation standing where it or standing where he ought not to. Now, I'm going to tell you what I think that means, but here's the thing. It's important to understand that all of this has to do with the destruction of the temple, which we said earlier has already happened. Therefore, as we go through these verses, this is, this is past tense. It's already taken place. And the reason this has to do with the destruction of the temple and the reason it has already happened has everything to do with the main point of verses 14 to 13, which is simply this, run away from Jerusalem. And that, that's, that's the theme. That's the call of this passage. When you see this thing, the abomination of desolation, get out, flee, run away. And so it has to do with people who are actually in Jerusalem. It's not some end-time event. Right? This is people in Jerusalem. When you see this, get away. And the reason why fleeing is necessary is because the temple is on the verge of being destroyed. Just like Jesus said, judgment is about to fall on Jerusalem in the temple. And so the appearance of this abomination of desolation would mark a dark, dark day for the Jewish people who are in Jerusalem. And it's for the people in Jerusalem. That's who this is for, this warning. And when the end comes for the temple, they ought to flee and not look back. That's the point. Don't, don't go back down into your house. Don't go back to get your jacket. You ought to run because it's going to be bad. Get as far away from Jerusalem as you can. In fact, it'll be terrible for pregnant women and those nursing infants because they're going to have to flee and it's going to be harder for them than everyone else. And you ought to pray that it doesn't happen in winter because that'll make it even harder for them and others. In those days, surrounding the destruction of the temple, verse 19, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning until now and never will be. So Jesus is saying when, when this happens, it's going to be terrible for those in Jerusalem, a nightmare. And part of the terror is certainly the fact that the temple is going to be destroyed. The temple that marked God's presence, it's going to be destroyed completely. And that is a terrifying thought for, for the Jewish people who rested in the temple. And that's, that's where God is. We're good as long as we have that temple. So flee Jerusalem, and, and notice verse 20, the Lord will ensure that his people are going to be saved. His, his people will not be destroyed, we presume, because they're going to heed the warning of Jesus. They're going to run. They're going to get out. And, and we should note that this command to, to flee Jerusalem, it, it goes against the grain of most Jewish thought regarding the temple, right? Where's the place of refuge? We go to the temple. Where, where is God in, in the midst of us? He's in the temple, the temple is where people would flee too, but here Jesus says, don't, don't follow the crowd going to the temple. Get out. Abandon the temple. And notice how he ends section verse 21. After all that, even then, if someone says, now the end is here, now the Christ has come, don't believe them, he says. Even the destruction of the temple doesn't mark the end. Don't be led astray. Be on guard, Jesus says. I'm telling you things now so you won't be duped into following some false Christ or some false prophet. Now, before moving on, let me, let me tell you what I think about this abomination of desolation. The first thing I'll say is this. This allusion to this figure, to this thing, is something that would, have not, that would not have been lost on the original audience. In other words, as Mark's gospel is being read, we say late first century into the second century, people who are hearing know exactly what Jesus is talking about. So when they hear this, they say, oh yeah, I know that, I, I remember that. The thing remains inside information that the original audience understood. We're left with only guesses, right? So we can't know for sure, which is okay because, like I've been saying, we're not supposed to flee Jerusalem. 
doesn't concern us. The temple's already been destroyed. It's already happened. This particular prophecy's already been fulfilled. So obviously, I think it makes, makes most sense that this abomination of desolation has something to do with the period of time surrounding the destruction of the temple, which would be sometime between 66 to 70 A.D., and so some people will say it's a reference to a Roman ruler named Caligula who was planning on erecting this statue of himself in the temple on the altar. And they say, that's it. When that went up, that, that's when they knew. Or some people say it's a reference to, to Jewish zealots. The, these Jewish people themselves who, who, were, who were refused to be ruled by the Romans. And they, they take over the temple. And they, they commit a whole series of villainous acts in the temple. And they're a bunch of rebels who, who are desecrating the temple. Some say that's what it was. Some say that, that when Titus, this Roman ruler, besieges Jerusalem and destroys the temple in AD 70, that that's what happens when the Romans destroy the temple. That same historian, Josephus, says that there were approximately one million Jews who were killed by crucifixion and famine and other horrors when the temple was destroyed. And so again, not sure who or what this abomination is, but I'm quite sure that whatever it was, whoever it was, it's related to the destruction of the temple and it's already been fulfilled. Right, so in, the, in this context, I think that's the case. And so before we move to, to verses 24 to 27, let's look at, fast forward to 28 through 31. Remember the structure of the chapter. Teaching, teaching, parable, parable. So we've just come through the teaching of the first, the destruction of the temple. Now let's look at the parable as Jesus explains the destruction of the terrible, parable. So verse 21, or 28 through 31. So in these verses, Mark gives a lesson of the fig tree. It's different than the lesson earlier in Mark's gospel, but the lesson here, the main thrust of Jesus' use of the fig tree here is there's a comparison. The, the fig tree, when leaves appear, it's a, it's a sign that summer's coming. Right? So, so look at the fig tree. It, it produces leaves, and you know, okay, something's coming. Right? Summer's on its way. It's a comparison between that and the events that he's just talked about, the destruction of the temple. These events will, will give the sign that something's coming. So these things of verses 5 through 23 give a sign of what's coming, namely the destruction of the temple. And so the main reason I'm, convin I'm convinced that 28 through 31 refer to the teaching of the destruction of the temple is because, look at what Jesus says. He says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Right? So, so I think we have to take Jesus at his word, that whatever he's talking about took place among that generation. I mean, so what does he mean? This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Some people say Jesus was wrong. They say, well, he's talking about everything, the, the destruction of the temple, the return of the Son of Man, and he was just wrong. Some people want to redefine generation, saying no, it just means Jewish people in general. And so the Jews won't, won't become extinct until all these things have happened. I don't see why this generation can't simply mean this generation. Right? If, if you follow the phrase, these things throughout this entire chapter, these things are always referenced to the destruction of the temple. And so when Jesus says, these things are going to happen, and this generation is going to see these things happen. He's simply saying, this generation is going to see the temple destroyed. They're not going to pass away. It's going to happen in your lifetime, disciples. I think that's all he's saying, which as we've seen, it did happen. The disciples and their contemporaries did see the all things take place that had to do with the destruction of the temple. That's why it makes most sense to me to understand verse 28 through 31 as referring to the first subject matter of verses 5 through 23, the destruction of the temple, which leads to the last section, the end of the age, verses 24 through 27. So, so you see the, those verses, verse 24 through 27. And so these verses mark a switch. So we've been all about destruction of temple. Now Jesus switches to the return of the Son of Man, the end of the age. 
The second event is his second coming, the, the end of the age. And so remember, throughout this whole section, there's separate events. So now, in verses 24 through 27, he goes to the second coming, what's yet to be fulfilled as we stand here this morning. And so the question that Jesus is content to leave unanswered is exactly how long is it going to be from the destruction of the temple to his second coming? He doesn't, he doesn't answer that question. Notice verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, so I think he's talking about the destruction of the temple, that tribulation, in those days after that, this is going to happen. That's all he says, after it. How long, Jesus? Like a thousand years? Like 500 years? How long? He doesn't say. Right? There's an ambiguity. After. That's all you need to know. After. The ambiguity, one commentator notes, is deliberate. Jesus doesn't intend for us to try and unravel it. Otherwise, he'd have given more clues. All he says is after. And so all this symbolism of cosmic signs, they're simply evidence, the world's testimony, so to speak, that, that the Son of Man has appeared. So the darkening of the sun and the moon and, and stars falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens being shaken, all of these, they're not, they're not signs of the second coming. They're the effects of the second coming. He, there he is, and the world is going crazy because its maker is now coming again. They're not preliminary signs to warn of his coming, but when he comes, it'll be clear to all because all of this is going to be going crazy. No secrecy. There's nothing hidden about this return. Now, you can't hide the darkening of the sun and the moon and the stars falling, all this cosmic chaos. He's going to appear, and the whole world's going to know. No secrecy involved here. Only Christ in his unveiled power and glory, appearing to gather his people to himself. Notice the encouragement. There he's going to gather his people from all over the world to be with him, and there they will be forever. And at this point, the suffering, the persecution, it, it's, it's a thing of the past. It's over. Jesus has come. Relief will come in the clouds in the person of Christ. And then, only then, will the end come. Which leads to the final, verses 32 through 37, his teaching on the return of his second, uh, of his second coming or his return, the end of the age. And he says, verse 32, concerning that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the, follow, only the Father. So be on guard and keep awake. So again, re regarding his second coming, he calls for alertness, watchfulness. He calls for these things because they don't know. They don't know what's going to happen, so they ought to be on guard. The fact of his coming is certain, but the timing of his coming, that's uncertain. And his call in verses 34 through 37 is for his followers to be awake. Don't be caught off guard. Don't be asleep. I've told you it's going to come, so be ready. And so when you read in, in light of all of this, the apparent contradiction between verses 28 through 31, so you notice, here's the signs, here's what's going to happen, that's verses 28 through 31, and then there's, no one's going to know, verse 32 through 37, people say, look, it's a contradiction. Well, it's not, because the first section refers to the temple, the second refers to the coming of the sun. They're two different events, and he's referring to each of them separately. So when we realize that verses 28 through 31 and verses 34 through 37 are about two separate events, a lot, not all, of the confusion and uncertainty about this chapter is removed. Well, let me close with a couple points of application as we, as we think through this. I'm going to move quickly through these. I've only got a couple. So first, application, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed specifically as it relates to wars and earthquakes and famines. I don't know how many times people are saying, well, look, did you hear about the earthquake? Does that mean Jesus is coming now? And that's the exact opposite point that Jesus is making. Don't be alarmed. Don't get all excited, right? Nature of life in a fallen world involves wars and rumors of wars and nation rising against nation, earthquakes and famines. That's what life in a fallen world involves. So don't be alarmed. 
These were part of the world when Jesus first spoke the words, and they're still part of our world now. Don't be alarmed. Don't try and interpret God's end-time calendar with current events. Jesus doesn't intend for you to figure it out. He simply intends for you to be ready. Be ready. Will you be found ready when he returns? Don't be alarmed. I mean, notice throughout this whole thing, there's, a, there's this sovereignty of God who's in control. This must happen. This must happen. It's not chance. God is in control of all of it. So don't be alarmed. Remember the, the nursery room. He's got the whole wide world in his hands. The whole wide world in his hands. Don't be alarmed. Second point of application, persecution and witness. I simply want to know the connection here. It was the persecution of the early disciples of the early church that led to the spread of the gospel. It's persecution that leads to witness. The purpose of Christians being handed over, being persecuted, seems to be directly tied to an opportunity to witness. I mean, it's purposeful persecution. How about that for a purpose-driven life? Right? I want to be persecuted. That's my purpose, so that the gospel can go forward. We don't know here and now much about persecution, about being handed over to authorities, but, but I'm sure throughout the history of the church and throughout the world today, there are believers, there are brothers and sisters living today who see purpose in their suffering, in their persecution. They're encouraged by this. Like Paul in Philippians 1, when he writes to the church at Philippi, he says, I want you to know that what's happened to me, right, he's in prison, he's writing from jail, he says, I want you to know what's happened to me has actually really served to advance the gospel. So that I'm telling all the, off, all, the, all the officers, all the soldiers about the gospel. And I couldn't tell them that if I wasn't in jail. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm in prison and I know you think that's bad, but it's actually advancing the gospel. That's Paul's mindset in the face of his suffering and his persecution. And so for the Christian, persecution, suffering, opposition, not reasons to fall back or fall away. Rather, they're reasons to stand strong and endure because they provide opportunities for the gospel to go forth. Third application, stay awake. There's only one more after this. Stay awake. And this is for some of you now. Wake up. We don't know when the Lord is coming back. We don't know when he's coming back, but we know he is coming back. We know he's coming back. It's been almost 2,000 years since Jesus spoke these words. His coming is closer now than it was then. Right? That's that, we know that much. It's going to be closer tomorrow than it is today. He's coming back. We don't know when. So we have to stay awake. One, one, church, uh, one, one figure in church history, he, he wrote these, these 70 resolutions. He said, I'm going to live my life by these resolutions. And he, he sought to, to follow them every day, so he reminded himself of them. But one resolution I want to draw your attention to, it's number 19. He says, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trump. Never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I knew that the end was coming in less than an hour. That's being ready. That's being awake. In other words, this man's resolved to stay awake, and we ought to do the same. Be ready. And then lastly, there's one sure thing. Right? There's one sure thing when it comes to the return of Christ. So I, w- I want to read this quote that I came across. This is, this is one commentator writing on Mark 13. So I have this up. So there you go. So you can follow along. It is important to note what this glorious vision of the future does not affirm. So he's talking about Mark 13. It's important to note what this glorious vision of the future does not affirm. There's no mention of a millennium. There's no new Jerusalem. There's no rebuilt temple. There's no restoration of Israel or the state of Israel. There's no battle of Armageddon. There's no hints how and when Christ will return. About all these things, 
the text is silent. All these incidentals yield to the preeminent truth of the power and glory of Jesus' future coming and the promise that his elect will be gathered to him. The preeminent truth concerning all discussion of the return of Christ, the one sure thing regarding the end is the revelation of the power and glory of Jesus' future coming and the promise that his people will be gathered to him when he does return. That's the one sure thing. He's coming back and we're going to be with him. Think what you will about millennium and the future visitor and all that. Jesus is coming and we're going to be with him. At the end of the day, no matter how dark things get, that truth, that one sure thing sustains and gives hope. Let's pray.